Romans chapter 8. And as you're turning there, we're going to consider something that is true every time we come to church. But I want us to just think about it, that in God's providence, everyone who is here today is exactly here to hear from the Word of God at this specific moment to hear about Romans 8. And that God has a Word tailor-made for you that the Spirit's going to imply in all sorts of ways. And I never know what God's going to do every given week and how He's going to work in different hearts. But when you're here today, you need to know that, that God has purposed for you to be here, to hear a Word from the Bible which is his word to us. So think about that. Like whenever you walk into church, you're going to get a word from God for your, your good and for your life that can help you or it can harden you if you turn away from its truths. So that's sobering and, and glorious all at the same time. So we're going to ask for the Lord's help as we Dig into Romans 8.28 one more time this week. Come before the Lord with me. Father, we thank you. I thank you for all those who are present and all those who are listening online. Father, that, that you would distinctly weave a word that is suited for each and every heart. Father, I pray that you would work above and beyond what we could ask, hope, or imagine I pray that you would create life and vitality where we are stale and withering. I pray, Father, that you would create healing and help where we are discouraged and depressed and despondent. I pray, Father, that you would mobilize a people who are just sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ, ready to break into a world in darkness and bring the light of the world. Father, I pray that, that we would be a people that are, who are not only ready to worship you, but longing for the nations to worship you who do not yet worship you. So I pray that as we get into your word, as we get some help from this passage of scripture, Lord, that your spirit would move on us now, that you would come upon me, that you would help me to preach with compassion and tenderness and love and conviction and a holy boldness to make known the mystery of the gospel. And Father, I pray that we would be able to lean in right now to receive a word, Lord, not from just a preacher, but a word from you that is wrought by your spirit that is meant to do much good in our souls. And so we ask this in Jesus' mighty, majestic name. Amen. So last week we stepped into the world of Romans 8.28. And I said we were, we were coming to the summit of a mountain, right? We're coming to the summit of God's promises. All his promises are, are coming to a head. And this is like the apex and... As I was preparing this week, I wanted to go to a few other places and I just sensed that we need to linger because when we get to a summit, you don't just want to hike back down, right? When you get to a summit, what do you want to do? 
You want to look out and see the beauty and take it in and get help. And the Puritans were famous for taking one verse and looking at it in hundreds of different ways. And they would write like 300 pages on one verse of the Bible. And they would just show you the many uses that this verse can have in your life. It's got one meaning, but there are many applications, many uses for our life. So that's what I want to do in this message. I want us to look at Romans 8.28 once again and just get help in seeing how many ways the Lord will apply this into our hearts and minds and souls for our good. And you remember it, right? You probably know this verse by heart. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That's the promise. And Thomas Watson was so helpful. He was a Puritan who wrote a 136-page little book on this verse. Right. And he said this in his preface, he said, there's two things that I've always looked upon as very difficult. The one is to make the wicked sad and the other to make the godly joyful. So when he looked at his preaching, when he looked at unfolding God's word, he wanted to do it in such a way that by God's spirit, it would make the wicked long for salvation, be sad in their miserable condition. And long for God to break in and save them. Long for help. Long for medicine to heal them of their spiritual disease. But then he looked at the Christian and he said, I want them to be so elated, so transfixed, so helped, so moved, so full of gladness that they can't help but rejoice and soar in the marvelous, beautiful truths when they actually believe God's word and they take God at his word. So that's what we step into when we look at Romans 8.28. We step into a, a massive promise, right? A massive promise that last week we looked at and we said, God works all Things together for good in the life of the Christian. All things. He's not saying everything that happens to you is good because suffering and disease and persecution and even the sin and struggles with sin that you have, those aren't good things. But God, in His beautiful providence in His care and His governing of all things uses those things for good in your lives if you're His. And that's the second thing we looked at. We saw that this is a promise that has some qualifications. This is a promise that's for believers. Look at Romans 8.28 one more time. It says, and we know... That for those who love God, 
qualification number one, all things work together for good. Four, qualification number two, those who are called according to his purpose. And we learn like that's Christians. Christians are those who love God. Unbelievers are those who are hostile to God and they don't submit to his law and the wrath of God is on them and they have no love for God. But the believer loves the Lord. The believer has has begun to have his affections stirred and has been saved and realizes he's been forgiven of his sins and, 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 and she's been forgiven of so much, right? That they begin to be full of deep love and gratitude toward God. But underneath that, right? Because that's, that's our experience. We love God. And that's one way we know this promise is ours is if we're, if we're lovers of God, if we're people who have been gripped by God, who are falling in love with the Lord more and more every day. This promise is just all over us. But lest our experience, right, go up and down in that, because some days, if we're honest, we don't, we're loving God real little. It's like, it's, it's just a seed. And it needs to blossom and bloom. And sometimes seasons of life, we're so discouraged that it's hard to get in touch with this. And so that second thing we see in, in Romans 8.28 is this is a promise for those who have been called according to the purpose of God, according to His purpose. You've been called out of darkness into light. You've been summoned out of your sin and out of your rebellion to submit your life to Jesus, to lay your life down and put your trust in Christ. And it's a supernatural calling that takes great root in the heart and produces faith. And that's why Paul, as he opens Romans, can say, as he addresses those, his letter is to, to those who are called and loved of God. Called to be saints. Romans 1.7. You're called to be something. You're called to be transformed. You're called out of the world. And saints just means those who have been set apart and made holy by God and are growing in holiness. So that's this promise. It's all things that are working for good in the lives of believers and nothing Nothing in our lives is not touched by this promise if we're Christians. But the flip side is, if we're not believers, all things are not working for good in your life. But they're headed towards a very terrible end. So I wanted us to just get, get before us, just a little review here. And then, now that we've seen kind of, what does this mean? It means God's at work in your life for a glorious good end. That verse 29 reminds us he's making us more like Jesus. Look at it right there in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God had planned from eternity past to make you more like Jesus if you're a believer. 
That's a radical thing to think about. Before you, before you were born, before you stepped into this room, before you were even saved, God had a purpose to make you like Jesus. And he laid it on you. And he's working those purposes out. And verse 30 just shows us that unbreakable chain of how God's doing it, right? He predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified, and nobody's going to break that chain. He does them all, right? Look at it one, one more time. And those whom he called, or those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. So God is committed from beginning to end to make us more like Jesus. And one day that'll be consummated. And now comes the part, how do we get help? Where, what are these uses of this text? How, how can this like put boots on the ground in my life? How can this plow the ground of my heart to make me soar in faith for King Jesus? How can this change my life day to day? And that's exactly what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the uses of this passage. Use number one. First, we must first believe this promise in order to enjoy its blessings. And that word enjoy is key. We must believe the promise if we're going to enjoy its blessings. The promise is true regardless, but your experience of it is ultimately affected by whether or not you believe it. If you don't believe it, God's still working things for good in your life, but you're not tasting and seeing the Lord is good. You're not seeing and savoring His beauty and how He works in your life, even through the hard, difficult sufferings that you go through or the failures of your past, how He can use them for good to shape your future. You won't see any of that if you don't stand on this promise. And that's why the verse 28 says, and we know there's a certainty there. That word for no is, is, is a fixed certainty. It's a, it's bedrock truth in your life. You're going to stand on that. You're going to bank on that. And even when you don't feel it, you lay hold of it because you know, God has told you that. And so there's a sense that this is kind of what it means to, to, to live by faith and not by sight. This is what it means to strap on the armor of God, right? That's what we saw when we read the, that text about spiritual warfare. There's all sorts of stuff warring against you so that you won't believe God's good in your life and that he's working good purposes out when things go wrong. It's easy to believe God is good when everything goes well. But what do you believe when the bottom falls out of your life? What do you believe when everything around you gives way? Is Christ your hope and stay? Is this promise the solid rock you're going to stand on? Ephesians 6.13 reminds us just what it, what it means to take up the armor, right? And this is armor in our arsenal. Romans 8.28, right? This is Ephesians 6.13. Listen to it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The Christian life is about standing. 
It's about standing in the face of opposition, standing in the face of adversity, standing in the face of life's difficulties, knowing that God is for you. Stand, therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having as the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And then listen to this, verse 16. In all circumstances, in just some circumstances? No, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So you want to know how to get a hold of Romans 8, 28? You've got to take up the shield of faith. You've got to believe this promise and it's like a shield going up and the fiery darts of the enemy are just being lobbed like volleys at you. Volleys of arrows just coming at you boom, 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 into your life. And you're always going to believe the devil's lies if you don't take up the promises of God and stand there. So the question when we come to a text like this is always going to believe, do we believe it? Because if we believe it, it's going to just shape everything we do. And what a shield it is when you begin to hold up. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. But you just got a terrible diagnosis from the doctor. All things work together for good. But you just got persecuted at, at, in the workplace. All things work together for good. For the believer. But you've been depressed for months and you don't see any hope. And you don't see anything changing this thing. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Oh, this is meant to produce a kind of faith that just keeps getting strengthened the more you, you yield to this promise. And you ask God to take it and, and watch Him take your despair over time as you look at it again and again and again and think of it and remember it and consider it when the lies come. And your despair will turn to joy. Because you know, no matter what's going on, whether it's good or bad, God is in it to bring about a glorious good to make you more like His Son. And that's only a promise for those who are in Christ. And you've got to have childlike faith to believe that. Small children just, they believe everything daddy says because daddy speaks truth. And we need to come to our Father in heaven with that childlike dependence, even when circumstances seem to speak otherwise. So we got to stand on the promise. Use number two the promise of Romans 8.28 means God is actually for you. 
the promise of Romans 8.28 is only possible. He's only going to work all things together for good for you if he's for you. If he's not for you, he's not doing that. But he's for you. Child of God, do you realize that God is for you? When the dark night of the soul comes, do you realize God is for you? When suffering is difficult, do you realize God is for you? Look at Romans 8.31. This is, this is something underneath this promise. What then shall we say to these things? You know, the things like Romans 8.28. If God is for us, who can be against us? Or if we put that into a sentence, because God is for us, who can finally be against us? And Paul knew what it was to have enemies. He had enemies outside the church and enemies, false teachers within the church that would attack and malign his character. He had threats from the Jews that would come to, to, to take his head. And he was getting lowered in baskets out the city of Jerusalem and on the run. And he would have false teachers within the church maligning his character. Enemies of the gospel. He knew what it was to be in prison. And he knew what it was to suffer for the gospel. And he's saying, if you know God's for you, then he's in your corner. Sufferings may come, but God is for you. Persecution may rain down on you, but God is for you. And we need to, we need to think about as... Living in America in this day and age, the day of Christians being, you know, thought of well and liked and looked at as somewhat a friendly religion are over. Christianity is in the crosshairs of the culture. It's in the crosshairs of the sexual revolution. It's in the crosshairs of political pundits. It's in the crosshairs of our radio show hosts. Everybody is on the attack. Ultimately. And so what are we going to do if we don't believe God is for us? If you don't believe God's for you, you're not going to stand with him in the day of trial. But if you get your heart around this, if you know that persecution may arise, but God is for me and it doesn't matter what they do. God is with me. Well, then you can start seeing the potential of every persecution and every suffering that comes into you, to your life. You can see the potential for good in it, even though the thing is bad itself. Listen to Philippians. Remember, we spent six months in Philippians. Philippians 1.12, Paul is going to help us see the way he views his imprisonment. He's writing the letter from prison. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
What's Paul saying there? He's taking Romans 8.28 and, and, and laying, it, laying it on the Philippians. Listen, God is advancing the gospel by my imprisonment. God is emboldening the church because they're seeing that prison guards are coming to Jesus. The gospel's getting to Rome. God's using this tragic thing, me in a prison cell, shackled to some guard for glorious good. Last week, we looked at the life of Joseph, who gets sold into slavery, who gets thrown into prison, who gets raised up by Pharaoh to be ruler in Egypt to save his people. And when you looked back, when he was stuck in a pit, it didn't look very good. But we didn't see the end in that sliver of a moment where things just looked like everything was going to pop. God was up to something. And He's always up to something because He's for His people. And never let the devil lie to you and say He's not for you. He's for you. And if He's for you, who can truly stand against you and ultimately and finally prevail? They may beat you up. They may imprison you. They may malign you and mock you. And they may even kill you. But you'll only enter glory and be in the presence of your Savior. That's the kind of thinking and the kind of faith that flipped the world upside down. And the first century church, if they were living in fear and cowering in the corner, the gospel would have never prevailed in Rome. But they believe promises like this. God's for me. Use number three. Romans 8.28 is like healing balm to a discouraged heart. It's like a cold drink of water to a spiritually thirsty and parched soul. And when you come to it, you've got to look under the hood. Kind of like when, when, you're, when you're in a bad place spiritually, when you're discouraged, when you feel like real far from God, you realize something's wrong. It's kind of like driving your car and you start seeing some smoke coming out of the hood, right? You know something's wrong. And what do you do? You just keep driving until it breaks. No, right? You pull over. You open the hood and you check under the hood to see what's going on. Well, we need to check under the hood of Romans 8.28. We can't just lay on the surface and just say, all things work together for good. And we've got no reasons to believe this. There's all sorts of reasons. There's 10,000 reasons in the Bible. And there's many in this surrounding context. When we look under the hood of Romans 8.28, we see Romans 8.32. Look at it with me. Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So you want to know why God is working for good in your life in all things? Because he didn't spare Jesus. His precious Son. His only Son. His beloved Son. But He sent Him to a cross to be murdered and to bear 
the full weight of the wrath and indignation of God who is holy upon our sins, he bore it on himself. God did not spare Jesus from that for you and for me if we're believers. And if he did not spare his son, but he gave him up, how much more is he not going to give you graciously everything you need? Do you see the logic there? If he did the hard thing of giving up his son, he can do the smaller thing of helping you through difficulty and discouragement. And you better believe it because it's true. <laughs> it's true. And it's writ large a thousand times over in the Bible, whether you're looking at Joseph or Job or you're looking at uh, Esther in the book of Esther and the threat of Haman is coming upon the Jews and it looks like all the Jews are going to be annihilated by this man who tricked the king into believing he should slaughter the Jews. And what does God say through Mordecai to Esther? Perhaps God has raised you up for such a time as this. Esther goes into the king's harem. And that's not a great place to be. But then he becomes the favored queen or then she becomes the favored queen. And she's positioned in just the right place through all sorts of hardship to bring about good. And you know how that ends. God does some spiritual jujitsu on Haman and he ends up being hanged, right? And the people of God delivered. That's how God works. He's able to take a discouraged heart and remind them, I'm with you even when it looks hopeless. Because I didn't spare my own son, but I gave him up for you. And maybe we need to hear more texts around this because we need it penetrating deep in our hearts. Maybe we've got spiritual calluses that are keeping us from the glories of Romans 8.28. They've developed over time and they need to be softened by this word. Romans 5.8 reminds us, but God shows His love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If you've been justified by the blood of Jesus, made right before God by the blood of Jesus, if you've been delivered from the wrath of God, your greatest problem has been solved. Our greatest problem is not cancer, it's not tumors, it's not coronavirus, it's not the political liberal climate we live in, it's not the LBGTQ revolution. It is the wrath of God upon our sin, and if Jesus removed it from you, then your greatest problems are over. Because Jesus has come in to save you. And God loved you so much that He sent Him to do it. So that you would know he's for you. And he, run towards, he runs towards sinners in need and reminds them, I'm for you. And I want to lift up your discouraged soul and remind you what I did for you in Christ. 1 Peter 
reminds us, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. It it was God's intention to bring you to Himself through the death of His Son. That's how much He's committed to encouraging you when He reminds you to look back. Remember, this is written to Christians. This is written to Christians to refresh our memories about the glory of the Gospel and the love of the Gospel and the love of our great God who said, for God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes on Him shouldn't perish but have everlasting life. And oftentimes, it is the discouragement and the brokenness that the unbeliever experiences and when they really feel the weight of their sin before a holy God, that they begin to surrender all and put their trust in Christ. They get called of God. The Spirit speaks to them and they get drawn to Jesus because they see how good He is and they want Him. And that happens when the Gospel calls you out of darkness into your mar- into the marvelous light of God. One more. 1 John 4.9 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation For our sins. And that word means the wrath-bearing substitute. Jesus turns away the wrath of God for all who believe on Him. God means to impress upon our hearts today and through His Word. And every time you rehearse the Gospel that He loves you so much, He did this for you. Love was manifest in the world in the person of Jesus towards you so that you might be brought to God. The wrath turned away. The smile of God is on you as you trust in Him to help you. And He will never leave you or forsake you. That is a great encouragement to a weary and discouraged Christian. Use number four. Romans 8.28 is an encouragement to draw us to seek God. It's an encouragement to draw your heart towards God. It's an encouragement to draw you into a place of communion with God where you want to talk to Him. You mean God's working all things for good in my life? I just want want to get near that kind of a God. I just want to draw near to a God who's working in everything for my good. And that's exactly why the Scriptures are full of things that tell us to pray without ceasing and to give thanks for everything. Look at it. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Romans 8.28. Think of this. 
has to be true in order for this to be a reality. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's God's will for you. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in every circumstance. How do I do that? Well, if you know God's working in all things for your good. To bring you to be more like his son. To mold and shape you. To be bearing the image of God in a world that is dark and dreary. And the image of God has been so marred in people. That you can't see what he originally intended for the world. Until he saves somebody, sets them on fire for the kingdom of God, and they begin to live a different way? That's what this promise is meant to do. It's meant to draw our cold hearts to the warm fires of his love towards us and his goodness towards us. It's meant to draw us into prayer. It's meant to... Get us before the throne of grace to get the help that we need. And when we feel distant, we need to allow this word to shine a spotlight right into our hearts to draw us to King Jesus. Amen? Use number five. Romans 8.28 is an encouragement to pursue holiness. Did you ever think of that? It's an encouragement to pursue holiness. Because if you get the logic of it, God is working in everything in your life, the good and the bad and the ugly, to make you more like Jesus. And so if you know that's behind, that's working behind everything you do, then you're going to start living for God and start pursuing holiness knowing He's working in that to bring about your holiness. To bring about godliness in your life. To bring about a joyful living for Jesus. And that's why he said, I purposed this before the foundation of the world. To make you like Jesus. And when you're in heaven, I'm going to finish the work and consummate it. But until then, I'm working to make you like my son. I'm working to make you like my son. And we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. And you know who our elder brother is? His name's Jesus. He's the one who walks on water. He's the one who's compassionate and tender. He, a bruised reed he won't break. A smoldering wick he won't put out. He says, come to me all who are weak and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. And then he transforms people to make him, make them more like him. That's what the Christian life is all about, making us more like Jesus until one day it's fully consummated. Listen to it. Just, just have ears for this reality and how it's supposed to work holiness in your life when you hear 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, 
we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And what's that supposed to do in our souls? The very next verse tells us. And everyone who thus hopes or who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. Do you know you're headed for glory? Live for King Jesus. Grow in the likeness of King Jesus. Get this book in your heart. Get this book in your soul. Keep getting pictures of Jesus. Read through the Gospels. Learn about Jesus. See what He does. See how He responds. See what He looks like. And allow it to shape you. It was the famous quote of Robert Murray McShane, the famous Scottish preacher who once said, for every look that you're going to take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. And then you'll be made more like Him. For every look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. And know that His salvation is bringing you to a place where one day you will be glorified and you will shine like the sun, radiant in splendor. And all things will be made new. And everything that has been broken inside of you and in you will be made whole in the fullness of every desire and every longing for satisfaction will come true. Because Jesus is the one who satisfies our needs. Come to the living water and drink freely. These are marvelous, marvelous medicines to our soul. And we need help in the midst of a fallen world to be reminded that this beautiful promise is meant to shake us awake. This is, this is yet another means of grace. Another use of Romans 8.28 is it has the power to wake up a sleeping church. It has a power to wake up a church whether it's the 1st century or whether it's the 20th century or the 21st century, this passage of Scripture is meant to begin to kindle our affection for God and make us truly live for King Jesus. And in a world where it's so easy to amuse ourselves to death with endless binging of Shows and original programming and original programming and original programming until it's not so original and they're just recycling old stuff, calling it new stuff. Or we're scrolling through our Facebook pages for hours. Or on Snapchat, just wasting time. When Jesus is calling to us in Romans 8, 28, saying, I am with you and I'm working for your good in all things so that you'll mobilize as my people and take my name to the nations so that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Missions exist, as it's been said, 
because the worship of God doesn't. And if the church doesn't get busy about the business of preaching the gospel, then the nations perish. But of course, Jesus called us to this. And the first century church was awake to this. And it flamed the fire of faith to allow them to go into the toughest situations with real faith, knowing that God's going to work anything for good in their lives. And we just need that kind of faith. And, and a similar use of this text is not only that it awakens us to these realities, but it reminds us that we got to go do something for Jesus, right? We got to get after it. Like there's a world that's perishing in darkness. There's people on your street that don't know Jesus. There's people in your families that don't know Christ. There's people who are hurting who need these promises. And if we believe them, we better take them to the world. We're called to go and do something for King Jesus because God has committed Himself to bringing you through everything you go through. Height and depth. Struggle and mountaintop experiences, joys and despairs, sickness and health, all of it he's committed to working in your life to bring about good. And when you put Jesus first and you go start living for him, it changes the world. And then they begin to say what they said in the book of Acts. Who are these men that flip the world upside down? If they keep talking about Jesus like this, they're going to flip the whole world upside down and the whole place is going to go after them. Now, I want to close with a story of a man where we see this reality writ large. We see there's just so many uses for this passage, but you need to know that Romans 8.28 just begins to be a parable in the life of every believer as you live out Christianity. If you've been a Christian long enough, you've seen how God can use horrible things for glorious good. And I want you to consider the life of Chuck Colson, who it's about 50 years or so ago, he was the special advisor to President Nixon. He was a politician and a lawyer. He was a hardened man. He was known as Nixon's hatchet man. And if there was a dirty political job to get done, he's the one who was sent to do it. And as Watergate began to become a scandal, guess who was right at the center of that? Charles Colson. And he was not yet a Christian. And as that unfolds and as it becomes a, a public spectacle and as people begin to get indicted, Colson begins to be surrounded by Christians that are in high political places and they give him a copy of mere Christianity. In his moment of crisis, the world is falling apart for him. He's got the possibility of going to prison before him. And he reads... Mere Christianity. And he begins to awaken to this great 
glorious message of the gospel that God sent Jesus into the world and Jesus is the Son of God. And if Jesus is the Son of God, then everything He says is true. And He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by Me. And so Colson describes in his book, Born Again, what it was like to get called by God and become one of those who enjoy the promises of Romans 8.28. Listen to his words. And so early that Friday morning, while I sat alone staring at the sea I love, words I had not been certain of I could understand or say fell naturally from my lips. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit my life to you. And with these few words, while the briny sea churned, came a sureness of mind that matched the depth of feeling in my heart. And there came something more. There was a, there was a strength. There was a serenity. A wonderful new assurance was about my life. A fresh perception of myself and the world around me. And in the process, I felt old fears and tensions and animosities draining away. And I was coming alive to things I had never seen before. As if God was filling the barren void I'd known for so many months. And filling it to the brim with a whole new kind of awareness. Brothers and sisters, I give you the new birth coming into the life of Charles Colson, Charles Colson, the hatchet man of Richard Nixon and one of the people who spearheaded the Watergate scandal. Becoming a Christian and he's faced with the reality that if he keeps silent and doesn't say anything and pleads the fifth, he won't go to jail. But if he admits to the things he was guilty of, he'll go to prison, most likely. And for him, Jesus became Lord. And he owned his sin. And he confessed to it. And he pled guilty to the charges that he had committed crimes in his part in Watergate. And he went to prison. He went to prison. And he smelled the odor of marijuana cigarettes burning at night and toilet paper being thrown from cell to cell and people living like animals because prison reform had not really happened back in the 70s. And for seven months, he spent in jail. He was at the height of political success, the special advisor to a president of the United States. And he went to prison. But he found Christ along the way. And when he got out, do you know what he did? He founded Prison Fellowship, which was a ministry to go back into the prisons with the gospel and bring the name of Jesus and have classes and, 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 and institute social reform within the prisons and, and, and meet people's needs with gospel hope and tangible material needs. And you've heard of Project Angel Tree. That came from the mind of Chuck Colson as he sought to figure out how can we help 
inmates' families? How can we care for kids who are devoid of their fathers and mothers? And how can we get them the gospel? In over a thousand prisons and over 350,000 inmates are impacted every year by this ministry. And it's been going on ever since 1976. And God used a lot of horrible situations in Chuck Colson's life, even his prison sentence for good, to bring about the name of Jesus to a needy, suffering, discouraged people. And when he looks back on his life, he's, he's in glory now. He went to be with the Lord in 2012. He looks back and he sees every step of the way he was working for my good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Perhaps you're here today and you've just lost touch with this God. You've wandered, you've strayed, you've, you've realized like, like, I want that. I want this in my life. I want this kind of help. I want this kind of encouragement. I want the one who sent his son into the world and he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for me so that I could be rescued, so that I could be forgiven, so that I could be made new. And if you could do it in Charles Colson's life when he's stinking in prison and bring him out a servant of God and a servant of the Word to impact the world with the very failures that brought him to prison. But with good news to lay on top of that. The good news that Jesus seeks and saves that which is lost. He can do it in your life. And maybe you've been discouraged as a Christian and needing this medicine to just break over your soul again and again and again. Maybe you've forgotten these truths. Take them in. Take the uses of this passage and massage them into your heart by prayerful meditation. Let's come before the Lord and ask Him to work. Father, we thank You for this great promise. We thank You, Lord God, that it is the Mount Everest of hope. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, wherever we're at today, if we need to come freshly to You and to say with Chuck Colson, afresh. Lord Jesus, I believe You. I believe You and I accept You. Please come into my life. Lord, I just prayed, work that in our hearts. Even if we're Christians and we've backslidden and we need the medicine of Romans 8.28 to just remind us, oh Lord, how I need You. God, draw us. Move on us. And as we sing this song, may we get great help as we remember its truths. Lord, may the reality that you work for good in the lives of your people to conform them into the image of your son. And you do it in everything we go through. Oh, Lord, wash us and strengthen us with that great promise. In Jesus' name. Amen.